The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it has been some weeks since we were together. Uh, this was due in large measure to the Easter break that we took, and we're going to be taking another break for the tea room, I'm sorry to say. Um, but today we are together, and we are in the eighth chapter of Romans, continuing to make our way through this magnificent chapter that is chock full of all sorts of important things. And we're going to pick up today at... Romans chapter 8, verse 26, and we're going to go through verse 28, one of the most familiar passages in all of the New Testament, not just Romans. Uh, before we do, I'm going to make a public service announcement on behalf of Bill Christian, and that is um, there is a senior's trip, an excursion to Milford Plantation that is taking place on May the 12th. Um, this is a great opportunity. First of all, if you don't know anything about Milford Plantation, this was a former residence of Mr. Dick Janrett, who owned the Roper House down on um, the Battery. Uh, he was a very successful Wall Street financier and um, made it his life's ambition to collect houses. And he had some of the most magnificent 19th century houses anywhere in the country. And Milford is perhaps the finest example of Greek Revival architecture anywhere in America. It is absolutely spectacular. The house alone is worth the trip, but the thing about Mr. Jenred is that he filled all of his houses, and I think he owned six or seven of them, um, one up on the Hudson, one here in Charleston, one in Manhattan, one uh, in the, the Virgin Islands, all sorts of houses, he filled them with the finest classical American furniture known. Uh, his collection rivals anything that you'll find in the White House or at the State Department. Absolutely magnificent. It's so great, I'm going on this trip. So, um, so I just want to encourage you, you'll find the information there in the Inspire. They can take a, 40, a maximum of 40 people, but it'll be a lovely excursion. You'll have lunch at... Um, the Somerton Diner, which is sort of a mainstay in that area, and just a great opportunity to see some magnificent architecture and some magnificent American furnishings. So that's going to be taking place on May the 12th. Come and join us. You'll... Sure, he was the owner of that at one point. So um, lots to see up there. So great opportunity for you to go. All right, now on to higher and better things. Romans chapter 8. And we're going to take a look at verses 26 and following. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 28. The Apostle Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We said last time when we were together that prayer is a difficult subject. It may be one of the most difficult subjects in the Christian life. We all recognize the value of prayer. Jesus set us an example for praying. In fact, the disciples recognized that prayer was such an integral part of Jesus' own life uh, that they went to him on one occasion and they said, teach us to pray. But we said, nevertheless, many of us, even the more mature Christians among us, from time to time struggle in prayer. And this is not all that surprising. We struggle in prayer for a number of reasons. One of the reasons we struggle in prayer is because, after all, we are sinners. And so sometimes we don't ask for the right things when we pray. Sometimes we ask from selfish motives, for example, when we pray. But Paul acknowledges that prayer is a difficulty not simply because we're sinners, but simply because he says we're weak. That's why he says we need the Holy Spirit to help us when we pray in our weakness. And when Paul talks about our weakness in prayer, uh, he's talking about our physical weakness. You'll recall that the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane were asked by Jesus to pray with him three times. And Jesus went off by himself, and when he came back, what did he find the disciples doing? Sleeping. How many of you have ever climbed into bed at night, ready to say your prayers, and you don't even get halfway through them before you're out? And you wake up in the morning and realize, well, I didn't pray for that person, or I didn't pray for this situation because I fell asleep. Well, take heart. The Holy Spirit intercedes for you. Um, because of our weakness. And it's not just our physical weakness. Of course, it's our weakness in terms of knowledge. Uh, We are very limited. We are finite creatures. There are some things that we simply do not know, do not understand. There are things that we need that we don't even recognize that we need. And so we are weak. And for that reason, prayer can be difficult. And there are all sorts of questions associated with prayer. What should I pray for? Um, Is God obligated to answer my prayers? Does prayer change God or does prayer change me? There are all sorts of questions that are associated with prayer. Well, we come today to a subject that I think is, in many ways, even more difficult than the subject of prayer for Christians. And that is this whole subject of the will of God. Look again at the verses I just read. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We all understand that. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. How many of you have ever struggled with trying to understand or comprehend what the will of God is for your life? Every single Christian at one point or another, and I would suggest at many points in their lives, have struggled with this question. It is even more vexing in many ways than the whole subject of prayer. And there are likewise a number of questions that arise when it comes to the subject of the will of God. Does God, first of all, have a perfect will for my life? Second question is this, well, if he does have a perfect will for my life, can I know or discover what that will is? 
Third question is, what do I have to do in order to discover what the will of God is for my life? And the fourth question is, will God actually reveal what his plan or his purpose for my life is? Those are serious questions, and we all struggle with them because we recognize that if we are not within the will of God, we are likely going to struggle we're going to be unhappy, and we're going to be frustrated. And so many people go through life longing, yearning to know what the will of God is for them. Well, that's the subject that I want us to tackle today, and hopefully we're going to do it in such a way that it will bring illumination. Now, when I say illumination, what I mean is that it will help us to understand more what the Bible means by that phrase, the will of God. It may not necessarily bring light to your individual circumstances but perhaps it will do that as well. When we talk about the will of God, it's important to understand that normally Christians are referring to three things in particular, three aspects of the will of God. First of all, when they talk about the will of God, they are talking about what is often referred to by theologians as the sovereign will of God. Another way of describing the sovereign will of God is to say God's eternal decrees this is what we might describe as God's work in history. The Bible tells us that God has a plan in history. History is not just a riderless chariot with no one at the helm, with no one holding on to the reins. God is actually at work in history. I've described it in the past as a great drama that is unfolding across the years. And God, as it were, is the playwright. And there are different actors that come onto the stage at different points. And you and I as Christians are part of that. Paul gives us a picture of that in the opening chapter of Ephesians. Uh, keep your finger there in Romans and turn, if you will, to Ephesians for just a moment. And you'll get an idea. I, I've said to you before, Ephesians is one of my great favorite books and one of the reasons for that is because it is a book in which there is practically every Christian doctrine imaginable. Now, Paul doesn't flesh these doctrines out to the degree that he does, for example, in Romans. But all of those great Christian doctrines are there. And here's what he says. Beginning at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he says... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual benediction or blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved." In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Skip down to verse 11. He goes on to say, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, here it is, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Paul is saying that God has chosen us and he's working in and through us for his great purpose, which is his own praise and glory. Ephesians is really, in many respects, 
a mini course in theology that is centered on the church. In fact, Paul describes the church as a great mystery. And a mystery here does not mean a puzzle, a conundrum, something that we can't understand. A mystery in the first century context meant something that was previously hidden but has now been revealed. But it's only revealed to the initiated. It's like joining a club, joining an order, the Elks or the Moose or, or, or the Masonic Order. Now, I don't know much about any of those groups because I'm not a member of any of them, but I know that some of them have, for example, secret handshakes and secret rites and secret ceremonies and that sort of thing. And you only learn those secret ceremonies when you what? Join the order. Once you're initiated, then those things are revealed to you. Well, that's the sense in which Paul uses that term mystery, mysterion, here in Ephesians. He's saying there are certain things that God has kept hidden, but he has now revealed to us. And one of the things that God has revealed to us is that he has chosen us before the foundation of the earth. He has called a new people, the church, to be the means, the conduit, by which he will work out his great grand plan of salvation in history. So when we talk about the sovereign will of God, that's what we mean. Now for us, this sovereign will of God, God working out his purposes in history, is something that becomes apparent to us only with the advantage of hindsight. In other words, when you're in the midst of it, you don't always understand or see what God is doing. But it becomes apparent to us with the advantage of hindsight. Let me give you another example. In the opening chapter of the book of Acts, Jesus reappears to his disciples following the resurrection, and the first question that they ask him is this, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now that was their question, because their assumption was that the Messiah was coming to drive out the Roman offenders and to reestablish the Davidic dynasty and to restore Israel among the princes of the earth. That's what they expected. And when Jesus was killed, all of those dreams were dashed to pieces. Now that Jesus was back, they wanted to know, are you going to do it now? And it's interesting the way that Jesus responds to that question. He said, it is not for you to know the times or the places that God has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria, and finally to the ends of the earth. And it's interesting to note that once Jesus ascends, that time period between the ascension and Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes down upon the apostles, is spent doing what? Going back, praying, yes, but going back, we're told, and studying the scriptures. Because they thought they understood what the scriptures were all about, but now in light of the resurrection and in light of Jesus' words, they began to realize that perhaps they hadn't understood the Old Testament at all. And they began to go back and study the Old Testament through the lens of the cross and the resurrection, and all of a sudden, all of these passages that seemed so mysterious to them began to make sense. Everything began to fall into place. But they were only able to do that what? With the advantage of hindsight. Have you ever had an experience in your life 
where something has happened to you, and at the time that you're going through it, you cannot understand what the purpose is. You, you cannot make sense of it no matter how hard you try, but then years down the line, you look back and you say, aha, that's what God was up to. I would have never recognized it. Well, that is exactly what Paul is talking about when he speaks of the sovereign will of God. It is God working out his plan in history. It is why Jesus is described as the lamb who was slain when? Well, not in the year 33 AD. He was the lamb that was slain, what? Before the foundations of the earth. That was God's sovereign plan for humanity. You know, we sometimes think that God had plan A, and when mankind messed it up in the Garden of Eden, God had to come up with plan B, and plan B was Jesus. Well, actually, what the Scripture reveals was that, no, God never had a plan B. There was only a plan A. God knew that when he created us, we would fall. When he gave us free will, he knew that we would exercise that free will. And God put in place, even before we fell, the means by which we would be delivered from our fall. But, of course, that's something that we only see, what? With the advantage of hindsight. So when we talk about the will of God, that's one of the things that we're talking about. We're talking about the sovereign will of God, the eternal decrees of God, his work in history. Here's the second sense in which we talk about the will of God in the Bible, and that is the moral will of God. And this is something that is not hidden from us. This is an aspect of God's will that is revealed to us, clearly revealed to us, his moral will. This is what God desires for his people. And that moral will is revealed in any number of places. Uh, one of the most obvious places, of course, is there in the Old Testament in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are a series of do's and don'ts. Because this is what God wants for our lives. This is how we are to live. We are to be honest people. We are not to lie. We are not to bear false witness. We are not to commit adultery. We are not to steal. We are not to murder. All of those things God is revealing to us. This is how his people were to live apart from the ways that the other people of the world were to live. When you get to the New Testament, Jesus fleshes that out even further in the Sermon on the Mount. You know what he says. You've heard that it was said, you shall not... Commit adultery, but I say to you what? If you look at a woman lustfully, you have already committed adultery with her in your heart. You've heard that it was said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, if you are even angry toward your brother, wishing him dead, you've already committed the act in your heart. So you have the moral will of God. Jesus fleshes that out even further, and then he makes it as simple for us as possible to understand and what we commonly refer to as the summary of the law. A lawyer came up to Jesus to test him on one occasion, and he asked him, what is the greatest of the commandments? And Jesus doesn't prevaricate, he doesn't hesitate, he simply tells them, the greatest of the commandments is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, and you shall love what? Your neighbor as yourself, you hear these words every single Sunday, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus said you want to fulfill the commandments of God, you want to fulfill his moral law, which he has revealed to you, do those two things. Love God above all else and love your neighbor as you love yourself. 
That is God's will for his people. It's not hidden from us. It's it's not secret. It is not something that you have to learn by virtue of initiation. The Bible reveals that to us plainly. Now, we all recognize that we don't all necessarily keep it. But that is God's will for his people. I think I've defined sin for you before. Um, Sin, individual sins, are simply doing anything that God forbids or failing to do anything that God commands. That's what sin is. It's a failure to keep his moral will. So we've got the sovereign will of God. We've got the moral will of God. Oftentimes, Christians speak then of the third aspect of the will of God, and that is the individual will of God. God's plan, not just for history and for time and space, and God's plan, not just for the Christian church in general, or Christians in general, but God's individual plan, purpose, will for my life. And that's the one that most of us are interested in, That's the one that when we talk about the will of God, that's generally what we mean. But I'm going to suggest to you that while we talk in those terms, that is not actually how the Bible speaks of things. One of the interesting aspects when you study the word of God is that you discover that God doesn't actually talk about his will for our individual lives. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that God doesn't have a plan or a will for our individual lives. If he has a sovereign plan for the whole universe and we're a part of that, then of course he does. But what it does mean is that God is not necessarily going to reveal that to us in the word of God necessarily as some sort of just answer book. I don't know what to do, Lord. I don't know whether to take this job or that job. Give me a sign. I want to suggest to you that sometimes God does that, but very often he does not. The Bible really doesn't talk about God's individual will for you and for me. Furthermore, I would suggest to you that trying to discover what God's individual will for your life is often turns out to be an entirely subjective enterprise. God, give me a sign. Well, you can read signs, this is the interesting things, almost any way when they are given to you. It was like going to see the oracle at Delphi and uh, you know, asking the oracle for a message or for a sign and she would give it. You know the, the famous story about the oracle at Delphi where they, the king went and he asked, he said, you know, I'm going to go to war against my enemy. Um, tell me, should I, should I do it or I should not do it? And the oracle says, well, if you go to war against your enemy, you will destroy a great nation. And he says, great, that's wonderful. And he goes off and he wages a war, and he does. He gets destroyed. <laughs> it's not the enemy's kingdom that gets destroyed. It's his kingdom that gets destroyed. And you see, that's the way prophecies often are. They can be notoriously, notoriously subjective in terms of their interpretation. And so we have to be careful about that when we're asking God for signs or directives because what happens is that the enterprise becomes entirely subjective. 
Third, if there is an individual will for our life, and you and I are capable of discerning what it is, what happens if we fail to meet it? In other words, if, if God had a plan for your life, and his plan was that you were to be a teacher, and you never became a teacher... Instead, you became something else. You became a lawyer or a doctor. Does that mean that you will spend the rest of your life never really fulfilling what God's plan and purpose is for you? See, if there is an individual will for our life, and, and we are meant to discover it, and we don't discover it, well, then that means we are going to live a life of frustration. And here's the fourth question. To what degree can we really seek God's will? How do we go about that even? How do we seek to understand? Well, let me suggest to you a couple of things to think about. First of all, I want to suggest to you that God does have a purpose for your life. I think he has a plan for your life, but like many things, that plan is not always clearly evident what we should really be talking about is God's purpose for our lives as individuals. And God's purpose for your life is the same as his purpose for my life. And if we follow his purpose for our lives, then what we will discover is that when it comes to the plan of our lives, there's a great deal of freedom. There's actually liberty. The Westminster Shorter Catechism of the Reformed Church, or the Presbyterian Church, asks this question. You know, catechisms are questions and answers, questions and answers. What is your name? One of our the old catechism in the Episcopal Church used to say, what is your name? My name is so-and-so. Who gave you this name? My parents in baptism. You know, they're back and forth, back and forth, designed to teach the faith. The Westminster Shorter Catechism of the Presbyterian Church asks this question. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You want to know what is God's will for your life? What is God's plan for your life? It's right there. The very first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Oh, what is God's purpose of my life? My, his purpose is for me to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. Another way of putting this is to say God's will for my life is to know him and to make him known. Or to live according to his moral law, his moral will, and not for myself. That, that, that's God's ultimate plan for you, whoever you are, whatever vocation you're engaged in, that is God's moral will for your life. He's revealed that to you. That's what he wants you to do. He wants you to know him. He wants you to enjoy him. He wants you to live for him. Now, that's true if you are a dock worker, a cab driver, a nuclear physicist. God's will for your life is that you may know him and that you may make him known in the world. So when people say, I don't know what God's will for my life is, actually it's not as difficult as you might think. It's really quite simple. That's what God's will is for your life. Now, if you understand that, then what it means is that 
there is a great deal of freedom in the Christian life. And that's what I want to suggest to you, that there is freedom in the Christian life. You and I are not robots. We are not automatons where God is directing every single thing we do. I mean, think about that. If God had a plan for every single aspect of our life, that means that the next time you go to the restaurant and it's a long menu and you're trying to figure out, should I have the chicken or should I have the beef? You've got to stop and say, Lord, what is your will for my life? Now we joke about that and we laugh about that, but think about it. That's basically what we're saying. And what I want to suggest to you is God says, I don't care. If you like the beef, have the beef. Of course, you've been putting on a few pounds. You might want to try the chicken. <laughs> there is freedom in the Christian life. There's a great book about this. came out in the 1980s. It's called Decision Making and the Will of God, and it's by two men. One was a professor, Gary Friesen, and the other one was J. Robin Maxson, who was actually a pastor of a church. Um, a free church, evangelical free church in um, Seattle, Washington. And they wrote this book. And I think it's a very helpful book. I first heard about it from Dr. James Boyce and then got a hold of the book myself. And it's really quite a remarkable book. And it is a very biblical approach to this whole issue of trying to discern the will of God because many Christians are frustrated in this area. And not only frustrated, but paralyzed by fear that they're going to mess it up. That I'm not going to discover the will of God and I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing something that I'm not intended to do, being frustrated and having missed the mark. Here's what they suggest in their book. First of all, they say, in those areas specifically addressed by the Bible, we are to obey. In other words, in those areas where God makes his will known, namely his moral will, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, etc., we are expected to live by those rules. In other words, we're not to change the standard. You understand that in the New Testament... The expression to sin is often described as missing the mark. The idea is that there's a target up there, and, and, and our job is to hit the target, to hit the bullseye. Now, if you've ever thrown darts in a pub or in a bar, you know that unless you hit the bullseye, you've not hit the bullseye. It, it, you've heard the expression, a miss is as good as a mile. You may only miss it by a few inches. You may miss the entire bullseye, or the entire target, rather. But it doesn't make a difference. You've not hit the mark. And that's how sin is described in the New Testament. You and I are to aim for this standard, this moral will of God. And you and I sometimes miss it. Now, sometimes we miss it by an inch. Sometimes we miss it by a mile. But it makes no difference. We've missed the mark. Now, here's what the culture wants to do. The culture wants to say it's too hard to hit that mark. So let's lower the standard. Or, or move in a little bit closer so it's not as difficult. You understand that you and I do not set the standard. God sets the standard. God alone sets the standard. Now, as Christians, we live in an uncomfortable place. We live with one foot in the world of the high moral standard, which God has set. But we also live in the world of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. That when we miss the mark, there is redemption, there is restoration, and there is the power of what? Trying again. Trying again. But what we cannot do is lower 
the mark. So in those areas where God says, this is how you are to live, where his moral will is clearly indicated, you and I are expected to live by it. That's the first thing, first principle. Second principle, they says is this. In those areas where the Bible is silent, the individual is free to choose their own course. In those areas where the Bible is silent, you are free to do what? To follow your own course. Now, when it comes to non-moral decisions, and that's really what we're talking about at this point because the moral decisions have already been delineated for us, in non-moral decisions, whatever decision we make should be based upon wisdom. We should always choose the wise course, and the wise course is always determined by Scripture. In other words, the scripture will set boundaries for us. It will set parameters for us. And as long as we live within those parameters, we are free to choose. But we should never seek to choose outside those boundaries, those parameters. And here's the fourth principle. In all our decisions, whatever decisions we make, we should always submit in advance to the fact that God has a sovereign will for the whole world. And we are a part of that. And so when things don't go the way we anticipated, expected, or hoped, recognize that God is still working out his plans and his purposes in history. Now, I understand that that sounds very ethereal, so let me give you a practical example. Love and marriage. Um, One of the things that young people really struggle with these days, and I don't think that they struggle with it, I think they struggle with it more than former generations, quite frankly, struggled with it. Um, The world is a different place, in case you haven't noticed. Um, But many young people, what you'll notice is that they're getting married later and later in life. It used to be the common practice, and of course there were a few exceptions to this, but it used to be that most people got married in their 20s. And they began to have children. That's what my wife and I did. We were, we were quite young. We were in our 20s when we got married. And almost immediately, we started having children. And I thank God for that. It seemed very difficult. But I cannot imagine starting a family now. In fact, uh, if you know my family, you know that we had two boys. And then we sort of hit the pause button. And then we had two more. Now we have hit the stop button. I can tell you right now. But it was harder with the last two, not because they were ill-behaved. Actually, they were better behaved than the first two boys in many ways. But it was just that I was older. It was more difficult. Challenges were great. Well, it used to be that most people got married when they were young. But we're seeing now a trend in Western culture, and in America in particular, where people are not getting married until their 30s. Some of them are not even beginning to have babies until they're approaching 40. And, and, and in order to plan for this, they sometimes even freeze their embryos so that they can be used at a later date. Now, part of that is certainly control. I want to be in charge. I want to control things. But you ask many young people, and they'll say, I'm not sure I found the right one. How how do I know? Even Christians will ask this question. How do I know that that's the right one for me? You mean 
Yeah, how do I know that that's the person? Well, that, yes, but I'm talking about somebody who's not yet married, who's dating, who's out there, and they're trying to discern, is this the right person for me? Well, what should I do? How do I know if this is the right person? How do I know that if I make this choice and marry this person, it won't be the wrong one, I'll be outside the will of God? I, I had a man come to me, this was not long ago, and he told me that he was thinking about leaving his wife. And I said, why do you think you want to leave your wife? Has there been some infidelity? He said, no, not yet, but I have met a woman, and I have so much in common with her. He said, I am convinced she's the one. And I made a mistake 20 years ago when I married this woman because now I have found the one I should have waited. Now, that's the way many people think. So how do we discern the will of God? Well, here's a great example of that. God, what he does is he sets certain boundaries. And he said, what you are expected to do is to live within the context of those boundaries. But if you live within the context of those boundaries, you are then free to take whatever course you want. So what are the boundaries for marriage? Well, first of all, the nature of Christian marriage, and this is made explicitly clear in the scriptures. I understand this is an unpopular notion. I'm not here to apologize for the Christian perspective. It is the truth. Marriage takes place between a man and a woman, a biological man and a biological woman, period. Now, that's, that's the Christian understanding. It's foundational to society. In the beginning, God made them in his image. Male and female, he created them. And this is written into our DNA, that is to say, at the deepest level. So for Christians, we cannot compromise, no matter what, on that issue. I understand that the world is compromising, and there's tremendous pressure being brought against us to do so. But we are not at liberty to compromise on that, period. And still be in accordance with God's revealed moral will for his people. Now, we have compassion for people who are struggling and so forth, but nevertheless, that's the standard. So, when we talk about marriage, we're talking about a marriage between a man and a woman. Not a transgender woman or transgender man, but a biological man, biological woman. Second of all, Paul makes this very clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. As Christians, as believers, we should not be unequally yoked. That is to say, believers should not marry unbelievers. Now, what happens if people were unbelievers when they got married, and then one of them gets converted later in life? Well, Paul has instructions for that. But he says, as a Christian who is looking to be married, and you're on the dating scene, you should not be unequally yoked. You should not marry an unbeliever. Now, there's practical reasons for that. Part of it is, is that you're just not going to have the same vision for life. You're not going to have the same standards. And so Paul says, do not be unequally yoked. You know, a lot of young women, they'll come to me when we're doing premarital counseling, and she's a Christian, she's dating a person that's not a Christian, and she says, but I think I can change him. That's what I call missionary dating. And I can tell you right now, it sometimes, most of the time, does not work. So Paul says we are not to be unequally yoked. You are to seek a marriage between a man and a woman, and you are to seek a marriage with a Christian. 
What else is beyond that? Paul says, you're free to choose. So let's say a young woman is dating three young men. I mean, she's dating. Why not? And she's dating three young men. She's being courted by three young men. One's a redhead, one's a brunette, one's a blonde. And, listen to this, one is a Christian, two are not. And she likes him. Her path is pretty clear, isn't it? Following the boundaries that Paul has set, she cannot marry the other two. What happens if all three are Christians? And there's a blonde, there's a redhead, and there's a brunette. Which, which one, Lord, which one? The Lord says, well, I don't care. Choose which one you like. That's how God works, you see. He sets boundaries for us. He sets parameters for us. But within those boundaries, within those parameters, provided that we live within them, there is freedom in the Christian life. God will treat us as adults. And so the Christian life is not confining. It's not restrictive in that sense. Yes, there are guardrails for us. But provided you live within those guardrails, you have great freedom. And now you say, well, what if I choose the wrong way? Well, there's comfort in the fact that what does Paul say here? The Holy Spirit is interceding for us with groans and moans too deep for us to utter. So you can take heart in that. You can take heart in that. Now that raises the question, is it ever right then to ask for specific guidance about specific issues? God has set parameters, and there's freedom within those parameters. Is it ever right to ask God to give us specific guidance about a very specific issue? The answer to that is yes and no. Yes, of course you can ask God for specific guidance, but no, you should never presume that God has an obligation to reveal something to you. He's given you enough for you to make what will be a decision within the context of his will. Second thing is this. Sometimes when you ask for guidance, God will guide by opening doors. We speak of this, but he also does it by closing doors. All right? Lord, open a door for me. Well, sometimes what God does is he closes doors. In other words, sometimes our circumstances themselves, you know, sometimes we say, give me a sign. Give me a sign. And we're looking for some, something dramatic. Sometimes what God simply does is he directs us by the circumstances of our life in a certain direction. Those circumstances can actually be constricting, putting us in a place where there's really no other choice for us but this one. Now let me give you a great example of this and a biblical example of this. It comes from the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. Turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 16. Now, those of you who went with me to Greece a few years ago, we stood on this very spot. Well, Paul was on his second missionary journey. You can see the second missionary journey. It's up there on the screen. What Paul did was he started off in Antioch. That's what you see on the far right of your screen. This is Antioch. That's Antioch in Syria. Paul then traveled through what is known as modern-day Turkey. 
Tarsus, where he was from, that was his hometown, through Derby, Iconium, Lystra. Those were all the towns that he had visited on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. He's making his way up to where you see Antioch and Pisidia. There were two Antiochs in the ancient world, just like there's two Charlestons. There's one in West Virginia, and then there's the real one here in South Carolina. There were two Antiochs in the ancient world. There was one in Syria, and there was one in Pisidia. Then Paul, you see, is traveling up the very tip, the northern portion of what is known as Asia, the Roman province of Asia. And you'll see to the north is Bithynia and Pontus. Now here's where we pick up the story. Take a look at Acts chapter 16. Verse 6. And Paul and his traveling companions... Paul went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. That's the area over here to your right. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi. It was the first time that the Christian gospel ever reached the European continent. And we're here today as a consequence. Now, what did Paul want to do? Initially, he wanted to go south into Asia. Why did he want to go south into Asia? Because there were major metropolitan areas there, and that was part of Paul's great missionary strategy, to get the gospel out to as many people as possible, as quickly as possible, and he was going to do that by taking the gospel to the cities. And before long, the cities where everything came and went, the gospel would be coming and going as well. So he wanted to go down into Asia. Now, he's going to get there eventually, but not on this journey. We're told that he was prevented from doing so. I would have loved it if Luke would have told us exactly how God prevented him from doing that. But he doesn't. All we're told is that the door to go south into Asia was closed. So he desires to do what? Go north into Bithynia. But the spirit of Jesus prevented him from doing that. Luke, what does he mean by that? We're not told. All we know is that God closed the door to the south. He closed the door to the north. What does that mean? Well, Paul knew he couldn't go back where he'd just come from. He couldn't go north. He couldn't go south. The only thing he can do is what? Keep going in the direction that he's going. And eventually he does, and he reaches the coast, and that's where God speaks to him in a very dramatic and clear way. He sees this vision of the man from Macedonia who says, come over here and help us. And Paul climbs on a boat, crosses the Hellespont, and takes the gospel to Europe. Sometimes that's the way God's going to lead. Sometimes that's how he's going to reveal his specific will for your life. He's going to say, live within the confines of what I have set forth. And, and 
well, I don't have the opportunity to go north. I don't have the opportunity. What do you do? You keep going in the direction that you're going, following his moral will. And as you do that, trusting him, walking by faith, then he gives you the light that you need for the next leg of the journey. There's a book that was written some years ago called Just Enough Light for the Step That I'm On. And very often that's the way God works. He will give you just enough light for the step that you are on. And what that means is that we need not be paralyzed by fear. You don't have to worry, well, I better not take another step because I don't know what God is. If you're already going in a direction and God has prevented you from going in a different direction, then clearly what he wants you to do is to continue on in the path that you are on. The one thing that is unacceptable is to stand still and do nothing. So we need not be paralyzed by fear. Here's something else to remember, too. God is gracious. He's merciful. He knows that we're limited. <laughs> he knows that we see through a glass dimly. He knows that we don't always understand. You know, Paul says that the Spirit intercedes for us in our weakness. Paul's not talking about our sinfulness here. He's saying we're weak. And I love the fact that Paul includes himself in that. He intercedes for us in our weakness. There were times when Paul didn't understand either. But he kept on in the direction that he was going until God clearly directed him to go in another way. God guides us oftentimes in terms of our talents, our gifts, our inclinations. When my eldest son graduated from college. He graduated with an English degree. Now, a lot of people send their children off to school so that they can get a job. I certainly hope my children come out of college with a job. But that's not why I sent them to college, and I told them this. I sent them to college to become educated men and women, because that makes them far more interesting in life. If you view it only as a means to an end, well, you've, I think you've missed the point of an education. So I said, you know, go and, and major in what you're interested in. And he was fascinated by English, and he went off and he majored in English. But then toward the end, you know how it is, and today with the STEM programs and so forth, he got out and he said, now what am I going to do with an English degree? I'm never going to get a job. And we began to talk about his gifts, his talents, what kind of jobs he would do well in. Now, he eventually became a lawyer. But you see, God sometimes guides us in terms of our gifts, our talents. I was very good at history. I was very good at English. I was very good with the social sciences. I hated math. <laughs> the Millers are gifted in many ways. We were never gifted with a math brain. It was clear I was never going to be an astronaut or a nuclear physicist. It's just not going to happen. So God directs you and guides you. And sometimes he directs you and guides you through the people who come into your life. I think a few weeks ago I shared with you the story of how I received a call to the ministry by a priest who just said to me, I, I look at you, I see your gifts, I see your talents, your personality. He said, have you ever thought about the priesthood? 
And what God did is he planted through that man an idea in my mind, and that is how God directs, and well, here I am. So God often guides us in terms of our talents, our desires, and we're not going to make a false choice, folks, provided that we are living within the confines of his moral and revealed will. Now here's the final thing, and we're not going to have time to get into this today. And that is, God is going to use all things, all things, for your good. That's a tremendous comfort, isn't it? Especially when we think we've blown it, we've made the wrong choice, or whatever it may be, because of our weakness or because of our sinfulness, whatever it is, what we can be assured is that we are going to end up exactly where God intended us to be. I think about the story of Jonah. You know, that's such a humorous story for any number of reasons, but not the least of which is God calls Jonah to go to this place called Nineveh. Uh, Jonah doesn't like the Ninevites. He thinks they're terrible people. He's perfectly happy if they never get converted. It's the truth. We really didn't want to. And so God placed within him this, 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 this idea of going to Nineveh. But he didn't like the idea. In much the same way that, quite frankly, when that priest planted the idea of going into the ministry in me and asked me to pray about it, I, I prayed about it dutifully because I admired that priest and he'd been so good to me. But then when God began to indicate to me through, you know, whatever direction it was or, the, you know, a sense of unsettledness in my life that I didn't have up to this point that I was supposed to go into the ministry, quite frankly, I was resistant to it. Like Paul, I was kicking against the goads. I didn't want to do it. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. And so the story is that he did what? He went in the opposite direction. And he got on a ship and he sailed in the opposite direction. And you know what happens. There are consequences to disobeying God's direction and guidance. And so this great storm erupts at sea. Uh, the sailors become terrified. You've heard the expression, a Jonah. They used to use this expression in the old navy, the old frigate navy, where they would say, oh, you know, if we're going through a tough time, the, the gods of the sea are angry. There's a Jonah on board. Well, it comes from this story. Uh, they said, somebody must have offended the gods. And Jonah's thinking to himself, well, I know who it was. And so they take Jonah, and he says, there's, there's no way for you to be saved. You're going to have to throw me overboard. And they say, oh, no, we're not going to do that. So they, they try to lighten the load, throw over the ship's tackle, everything else. Nothing's working. Finally, they decided, okay, maybe he's right. And so they pitch him overboard. And you know, he goes down into the depths of the sea. And what happens? This great fish comes and swallows Jonah. And for three days and three nights, great deal of symbolism in the story, you know, Jonah lives in the belly of the whale. Well, while he's down there in the belly of the whale, he has an opportunity to think about his circumstances. <laughs> and he decides maybe it's not so good to fail to do what God has commanded me to do. And so he repents and he says to the Lord, I'm sorry. And what happens? The fish spits out Jonah. Now, you all know that story, right? How many of you know that story? Do you remember where he got spat out? At Nineveh. He ended up at the very place that he was supposed to be to begin with. God was gracious and merciful in the end. 
and he's going to be gracious and merciful to you. You may make some false choices. You may rebel against God. You may go in the wrong direction, and you may end up experiencing something comparable to what Jonah did. I doubt you'll be swallowed by a fish, but something will happen to you, and you may go through a time of difficulty and a trial, but the promise is this, that if you repent, God will restore you and place you exactly where he has desired you to be. Because you are his child. You belong to him. And he will bring you back into his perfect will. All things will work together for your good. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. There are many specifics that we would like to have, Lord, but you treat us as adults. You give us boundaries, you give us parameters, and you call on us to live within those boundaries, within those parameters, and provided that we do, there is great freedom. Grant us the grace, Lord, not to be paralyzed by fear that if there are closed doors in our lives or open doors, we may have the courage to step through them, the patience to accept the closed doors, and the willingness to keep on going in the direction you would have us to go. Knowing that in your mercy you will save us from all false choices. And even when we blow it, will bring us back lovingly, sometimes painfully, but always for our good, into the center of your perfect will for our lives. We rejoice in this and give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.